You can probably walk by the nondescript building on the southeast corner of Belmont and Sheffield in Chicago's Lakeview neighborhood and not even give it a second glance. Unless, of course, you're craving a bagel, need a Bank of America ATM, or are here for a workout or a haircut. Of course, between 1969 and 1994, it was a whole different story. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Sit back and enjoy part two about that building on the southeast corner of Belmont and Sheffield and the legendary rock clubs that were once housed there. Today we'll discuss Tuts and Avalon Nightclub, and we'll hear from a few people who knew these clubs better than most. Bill Goffrier of The Embarrassment, a Wichita, Kansas band that played at Tuts and other clubs back in the day, former Avalon owner downtown Scotty Brown, and Mike Zelenko, drummer for the band Material Issue. If you listen to the previous Chicago History podcast about the club Quiet Night, you'll recall from 1969 till almost 1979, that club welcomed a who's who of amazing musicians, comedians, and others to the stage. After Quiet Night closed, it was only a matter of time before someone else reopened those doors. Where Quiet Night hosted folk, rock, acapella, comedy, blues, reggae, and just about every other genre. For many Chicagoans familiar with the club that took over the space not long after Quiet Night closed, the name Tuts instantly conjures punk bands of the era. Much like Quiet Night, Tuts offered a greater variety in performers than many may remember. A few notable events from the Tuts era include May 27, 1980, English band Joy Division was scheduled to play Tuts, but that show was canceled after the suicide of frontman Ian Curtis a week and a half before on the eve of their first U.S. tour. In June of 1980, Joy Division's most recognizable song, Love Will Tear Us Apart, was released. The remaining members regrouped as New Order. October of 1980, British band Psychedelic Furs perform at Tuts. A little more than three years later, they would headline a show along with Talk Talk at the outdoor venue Poplar Creek in suburban Hoffman Estates in July of 1984 and re their song Pretty in Pink for the 1986 John Hughes-produced film of the same name, cementing their place in pop culture. On Sunday, February 1st, 1981, Tuts was the site of the benefit for Kingston Mines, a legendary Chicago blues club that was trying to raise money to relocate after the roof collapsed at their old Lincoln Avenue address the previous November. March 8th, 1981, Bauhaus, best known for their song Bella Lugosi's Dead, played Tuts as part of their 1981 North American tour. Thursday, March 26th, 1981, noted author William Burroughs, best known for his novel Naked Lunch, appeared at Tuts reading selections from his works. Also touring with him was poet-aids activist John Giorno, who was also the subject of Andy Warhol's 1964 film Sleep. Admission was $7 for the performance, followed by a cocktail reception and midnight show by The Embarrassment, a new wave band out of Wichita, Kansas. We never considered ourselves a new wave band. That's Bill Goffrier, songwriter and guitar player for The Embarrassment. The Embarrassment kicked around Chicago in the late 1970s and early 80s when they came through town. I recently spoke with Bill and asked him if he and his band singer John had any memories about what it was like to be on the bill with Burroughs that night. I, I recall that we um, interacted, we hung out with Burroughs a little bit because I remember coming away from that night and hitting the road again. John 
had this like spot on impersonation of Burroughs, you know, after hearing him do his spoken word thing, John was able to, to match it, but he would just kind of make up his own, you know, text for it, uh, but using the Burroughs voice and it just, uh, it cracked us up. It was good amusement for getting us through these uh, long road trips for a long time after that. Bill went on to tell me how they made trips to Chicago work as a touring band from Kansas. A lot of times we'd end up playing two or three shows in Chicago within the, you know, within a couple days and just kind of dot around to different uh, venues because there was enough variety. Or, you know, let's say, especially if one of them was an opening show for somebody, so it wasn't our audience, and then you know, the next night we might be uh, headlining some smaller place and that would work out great. You know, a lot of time spent in Chicago. Fun fact, the embarrassment are being inducted into the Kansas Music Hall of Fame in 2020. April 2nd, 1981, Echo and the Bunnymen play Tuts. They, much like the Psychedelic First, would be featured on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack in 1986. June 28, 1981, a 26-year-old guitar player from Dallas, Texas, later Austin, Texas, takes the stage at Tut's. Stevie Ray Vaughan would go on to become one of the most iconic and influential blues musicians before dying in a helicopter crash, along with four others while leaving a show in East Troy, Wisconsin in August of 1990. November 10th, 1981, the Grammy-winning hit Broadway musical, as it was billed, Let My People Come, opens at Tut's. The San Francisco Chronicle called it, quote, naughtier than hair, more wholesome than old Calcutta. End quote, if that gives you some reference as to the theme. Tickets were available through Ticketron Teletron at 312-454-8400. For those of you uh, of a certain age, that uh, phone number should sound very familiar. Uh, that show played well into December of that year. In mid-February 1982, Tut's Disco, as it was referred to in the Tribune, was shut down for 33 code violations, along with six other area businesses. Apparently, there was an effort to crack down on violence on the L, and businesses close to those stops were targeted. Within a three-week period between April 9, 1983 and May 1, 1983, Los Angeles hardcore punk band Circle Jerks, jazz trumpeter Don Cherry and his world fusion band Codona, and Canadian heavy metal band Anvil play Tuts. Now that's variety. May 6th and 7th, 1983, Jason and the Nashville Scorchers perform at Tuts. Leader Jason Ringenberg was from Sheffield, Illinois, and attended Southern Illinois University before moving to Nashville in 1981 and forming his band. Uh, their name was later shortened to Jason and the Scorchers and had success in the mid-80s with a song called Golden Ball and Chain and a pretty rockin' version of Bob Dylan's Absolutely Sweet Marie. July 1st, 1982, Missing Persons, three months before their album Spring Session M is released. July 8th, 1983, Violent Femmes, touring in support of their self-titled debut album, which features Blister in the Sun, Play Tuts. September 15, 1983, Welsh rock band The Alarm appears at Tut's. They would later gain popularity opening for U2 and Bob Dylan and for their songs Rain in the Summertime, 68 Guns, and Marching On. November 13, 1983, St. Paul, Minnesota's Husker Du performs at Tut's. 
Regular visitors to Chicago, by the time they played Tots, they had already played clubs such as O'Banion's, uh, Club COD, The Exit, 950 Lucky Number, and The Cubby Bear. December 16th, 1983, former Cream drummer Ginger Baker appears as part of a trio. New Year's Eve 1983 at Tuts featured Chicago ska band Heavy Manners, who in 1982 released their debut album on Chicago punk label Disturbing Records. They would go on to spots opening for The Clash and Peter Tosh. Tosh ended up producing music for them that didn't get released until the band broke up in 1996. Tuts suspended shows in January of 1984 to, quote, take care of maintenance problems, end quote. But in February... 1984, T-Bone Burnett, who rose to musical prominence as a guitarist in Bob Dylan's band in the 70s, and who would later help launch the careers of Los Lobos, Counting Crows, and Jillian Welch, as well as becoming a respected music producer, plays an XRT unconcert at Tut's. For those of you not from the Chicago area, XRT is an album rock station. WXRT 93.1 has been a huge influence on music for many, many years. Speaking of Los Lobos, they appeared at Tuts on February 4th, 1984, riding high off a recent nomination for a Grammy Award in the Best Mexican American Performance category. They have played in Chicago many, many times since then over the years. August 17th, 1984, Rights of the Accused appear to be the last band that took the stage at Tuts. Fast forward to the first week of March 1987. The Chicago Tribune's article headline reads, Hardcore Club Softens Up, with a picture of, quote, party promoter and video producer Scott Brown, who, along with his brother Todd, took over the venue with big plans to create three bars in one with a live music stage, a DJ dance area, and a cabaret room for acoustic sets. I caught up with Scotty Brown in California, where he currently resides, to ask him how a kid from suburban Addison, Illinois, got started in the club scene in Chicago. I kind of quit high school, was selling marijuana, and uh, got hooked up with pretty good crew for that i started when i was 15 yeah 14 15 and then i quit when i was 24 and i just had a nervous breakdown more or less from uh too much money too much time on my hands and too many doing the product you know so i felt a lot of good and uh guilt and shame and wanted to change my lifestyle and that kind of caused a nervous breakdown and my parents admitted me to a psych ward Brown recovered, got clean and sober, and started promoting local clubs, including the Mars Bar on Rush Street, a juice bar that played house music, stayed open way too late, and quickly ran afoul of the city. He later realized he wanted to take a more legal step forward. I I was willing to do anything. I just didn't want, I wanted peace of mind, and I didn't have that with that other lifestyle, so... Basically, I all I knew, really what I loved was music and dancing and clubs. So I thought, well, that's legal. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go to jail or anything anymore. And so that's really what I had been wanting to do for a while. And uh, my father helped me out, too. And we I saw that with Tuts, the old Tuts was available for lease. And I had a lot of good times there. The Brown Brothers started booking bands and drawing sizable crowds to their venue. 
They started off things in the first few months with a nod to the former occupants of the building. The June 28, 1987 Chicago Sun-Times ran a column that read, Borrowing from the late 70s spirit of Eddie and the Squares, the nightclub Avalon is throwing an Open Tut's Tomb reunion for the dearly departed nightclub at 9 p.m. Wednesday at Avalon, 959 West Belmont. The reunion party will feature the smoking icons who, as Tutu and the Pirates, opened the doors for Tuts in 1978. Records and tapes of local and national acts who performed at Tuts will be played throughout the evening. These acts include Steve Ray Vaughan, The Psychedelic Furs, Echo and the Bunnymen, Joe King Carrasco, Sun Ra, Captain Peefart, and Philip Glass. But where's Edith Massey? Tut's founder and owner, Val Kolar, will be hanging out along with his sidekick, Bob, the voice of Tut's Rudnick. All former Tut's employees will be admitted free to the reunion. For all others, there's a $3 cover. And any local band who performed at Tut's may bring in a tape or a record for Avalon Airplay. Thus far, tapes and records have been received from Fill in the Blanks, Bohemia, 9-11, and Loose Lips. When I asked Brown if he ever saw a local band that played at his club that he thought might make it big, he did not hesitate. Bashing Pumpkins. Although on July 9th, 1988, Billy Corgan and James Eha, backed by a drum machine, debuted as the Smashing Pumpkins at a Polish bar called Chicago 21 Club. Fans consider the August 10th, 1988 show at the Avalon their first official show. Tickets were a dollar, and Corrigan, Eha, and new bandmate Darcy Retzky on bass, along with that trusty drum machine, played to an estimated crowd of about 50 people. Legend has it Cabaret Metro owner Joe Shanahan told the band after their set that if they hired a drummer, he would give them a show at his club. Shanahan followed through on that, and on October 5th of that year, the Smashing Pumpkins played at the Metro. After their August 10th debut at the Avalon, the Smashing Pumpkins played there four more times in 1988 alone, September 2nd, October 29th, November 23rd, and December 17th. December 9th, 1989, Canada's Tragically Hip plays Avalon for the second time that year. Lead singer Gord Downey had found memories of their earlier date, which was on June 23rd, 1989, saying, quote, that was a highlight on either side of that gig we played to audiences of four or five people. Then we showed up in Chicago. Granted, it was a Friday night, and I guess it was a happening spot anyway, but there was a big crowd for us, end quote. While they never achieved fame in the U.S. on par with their native country, Tragically Hip went on to a 30-year career filled with awards and strong record sales. Their final concert in 2016 was attended by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and broadcast ad-free to millions across the country. Check out the song Courage from their 1992 Fully Completely album. Sunday, December 17, 1989, Avalon sponsored Sober Sunday, an alcohol-free night. In the December 17, 1989 Chicago Tribune, bartender Holly Haley explained, quote, We started the Sober Sunday dance nights about two years ago. There were so many people who don't drink alcohol anymore who still want to go out and party. The bar offers only non-alcoholic cocktails, and we pack the house. Killer Acoustic Guitars, January 1990. 
Killer Acoustic Guitars was a weekly session that brought together local musicians for an evening of subdued jamming in Avalon's cozy cabaret lounge. Chicago musicians from bands like Deep Blue Dream, Luck of Eden Hall, Ministry, and Green were seen, and even Jim Allison of Material Issue played as part of this on January 26, 1990. New Year's Eve 1990, local up-and-coming band Material Issue plays The Big Night at Avalon. Material Issue had just signed their first big record deal with Mercury Records and had a new manager. It sounds like they may have been a little green when it came to the business side of things. Here's Material Issue drummer Mike Zelenko. Any New Year's Eve gig for any artist is, is a pretty good paying gig, right? So this is right when we signed with, uh, with our manager, and um, he, he had sent, he had sent um, someone over to collect the money. And we were like, and we, we knew this guy, and he was okay, you know, but... We were like, well, you're not taking the money. We understand that we just signed a deal with this manager that you work for. You can take your percentage, but we're taking the money. And he's like, no, I've been instructed by your new manager to, I'm taking the money and then you'll get paid later. And we were like, that, no. And there was this, uh, and like I said, it was, that was at, at a point where we had like, it was, it was, we were able to make enough money where we had like at least one or two uh, people helping us, like, you know, road crew people helping us. So this confrontation happened in the dressing room. It was like five against one. And we're like, you're not taking the money. You, you can have the percentage. And, and it was like cash, you know, and it wasn't like a ton of money, you know. And uh, there was a broken bottle and a threatening, yeah, I will kill you. You're not taking our money. And, 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 and that, 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 that was, uh, it, and, it, and, it, and it wound up being where, you know, this guy left with, I don't remember if we gave him any money, but, but he, didn't, he didn't take all the money. And, and it, it was very dramatic. Material Issue went on to play Avalon many times throughout their early years. Mike Zelenko estimates. We played there quite a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we played there at least a dozen times, if not 20 times. July 7th, 1991, Courtney Love and her band Hole play Avalon in support of their debut album, Pretty on the Inside, which would be released two months later. Scotty Brown remembers Love. She had almost passed out on stage. I had to carry her back to the office and, like, fan her down and give her water and stuff. And that's when she met Billy Corgan that night, too. Love and Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan were allegedly a thing in 1991, although she was already dating Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain and was seven months away from marrying Cobain in February of 1992. All that is really for someone else's podcast. October 12th, 1991, London-based funk group Brand New Heavies appears at Avalon. Scotty Brown. The Brand New Heavies. I kind of liked that dance music at the time, and it was packed. April 11th, 1992, the Atlanta-founded hip-hop group Arrested Development plays Avalon one month after the release of their album Three Years, Five Months, Two Days in the Life Of which featured the song Tennessee. That debut album went on to sell 6 million copies, and the band netted two Grammy Awards in 1993 for Best New Artist, they were the uh, first hip-hop artist to win this award, and Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group. They were also named Band of the Year by Rolling Stone magazine. 
August 21st, 1992, local band Trenchmouth, with future SNL cast member Fred Arvison on drums, plays Avalon. September 23rd, 1992, Izzy Stradlin, founding member of Guns N' Roses and writer of Patience, and Mr. Brownstone, who had split off from the group to do his own thing, played at Avalon with his band Juju Hounds. It was the one U.S. show before Stradlin and his band went overseas to tour. That was really cool. Obviously, they were a huge band. But when, so when Izzy came, it was one of the biggest things. MTV was there and they picked Avalon out of all the clubs. I was like, wow, you know, Izzy wants to go back to his roots and play at a smaller club. And I remember him coming in up those stairs, right? And he's holding a skateboard and he's got these long dreadlocks, like, like he wants to still be a kid. (laughs) And then MTV and all the film crews were there. And it was, it was probably the coolest, biggest media event we ever did it definitely was straddling was back in chicago in february of 1993 this time playing at the metro november 12th 1992 stone temple pilots play avalon in support of their debut album core which had been released two months earlier in september according to brown he would later work with scott wyland from stone temple pilots and help manage him you know they were brand new they were just coming out a lot of people haven't heard we were so lucky He basically reminded me that he played there. Bob Geldof, a few years removed from his fame as the organizer of 1984's Band-Aid record and 1985's Live Aid concert, toured America for the first time in 10 years. His Chicago stop was on May 1st, 1993 at the Avalon. Rumored to have happened at Avalon, according to the staff. Johnny Rotten, formerly of the Sex Pistols and in his own band Public Image at the time, came into Avalon and ordered a Corona beer. They didn't have any, so he left. I had also heard Steven Tyler of Aerosmith came in one day, and Scotty Brown talked Tyler into performing Walk This Way with him. That was the biggest star I'd have ever seen at that time, around that time. And he came in looking for this blonde girl, I forget her name. We, we did the jam night every Thursday, and I was doing the jam, so I was like, dude, you know. So he wanted to impress this girl, believe it or not, <laughs> and got up there and sang a little bit, you know. I asked Scott Brown if it's weird to him that there's a hair salon where his club once stood or if it's progress. To me, it's progress, you know. It's, it's a rough building to do shows in because it's on the second floor like that, you know. So if it were up to me, I'd. I'd gut it and make it on the first floor, maybe the second for more of a lounge or something. But, you know, the load-ins and everything were tough. If if I was to go back, you know, and my friend told me that, you know, who was in real estate, he said, dude, uh, old plumbing, this and that. I mean, literally, the plumbing would go down and we would be carrying buckets of water from, from one end of the club. We took them from the sink to the to- to the restroom because the water had broken down to make the toilets flush. I mean, it was crazy, that old building, you know. Scotty Brown eventually sold his interest in the club to his brother and another partner. But by then, live music in Chicago had started shifting south toward Wicker Park and venues like Double Door. When you just tried to compete with Jam and Metro and Double Door now to get the national acts, there's, you're not going to be able to. I also asked Scotty Brown how he would like Avalon to be remembered. Well, I don't know, just as a cool place that started music that gave 
musicians to start in the scene. Uh, eclectic place where there was a lot of different types of music, because that's true. Material issue drummer Mike Zelenko once again. Scotty and Todd, I have to like, you know, throw so much gratitude towards them uh, with um, they were, you know, a part of our building blocks of our success. They always worked with us in in, in such a great way. And, and, and we had a lot of great gigs there. Our fans still like share like on Facebook and stuff. They still share like great things to say about like being at the Avalon, seeing us. It's a great place. Avalon closed permanently in 1994. A few things to address. I saw multiple mentions of Prince, R.E.M., Eurythmics, and Run DMC playing at Tuts and or Avalon, but did much digging and found nothing to support this. According to sources, Prince's first show in Chicago was on February 28, 1980 at the Uptown Theater. According to sources, R.E.M.'s first confirmed show was at Cabaret Metro on July 25, 1982, followed by a show at Metro in September of 82, Park West in May of 83, and the Aragon in July of 1984. Run DMC does not appear to have played at Avalon, but did appear at the Vic around the corner in November of 1985. None of Iggy Pop's tour dates from the 80s show a stop at Tut's. But that does not mean, much like the stones dropping in on muddy waters at quiet night, that Iggy Pop didn't stumble in at one point. I found one newspaper listing for the Eurythmics, with the band's name misspelled, playing on July 24, 1983 at Tut's, and playing at Park West, which had doubled the capacity, three days earlier on the 21st. As the Eurythmics had a top five song with Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, I believe the management and concert promoters likely pulled the band's appearance from Tuts and moved it to the larger venue. The embarrassment finally split up and went their separate ways. Their drummer landed a spot in the 1980s Boston band The Del Fuegos. Bill Goffrier earned a Master of Fine Arts degree at Boston College. Currently residing in Kansas, his works can be seen online at goffrier.com. That's spelled G-O-F-F-R-I-E-R.com. Downtown Scotty Brown moved to California in 1994 and became the rock and roll realtor, appearing on the TV show Million Dollar Listing in 2006. His photos on the Avalon Facebook page are worth checking out. Mike Zelenko still plays music, but makes his living as a craftsman doing amazing woodworking designs with his company Mazzy Design Limited. There is a documentary in the works about the band called Out of Time, The Material Issue Story. As always, there is far more history to each of these venues, but I hope you've learned a little bit about Tuts and Avalon. If you want more, I'll be posting pictures and stories that didn't make the cut on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook and Instagram pages. Special thanks to Mike Zelenko, Scotty Brown, and Bill Goffrier for their contributions to this episode. As always, thanks to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Insta or email at jschneider152 at gmail.com. Do you have memories of Tuts or Avalon? Pictures you'd like to share? Something important I may have missed that really needs to be mentioned. Maybe you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. 
If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and review the podcast. And get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.